Father, uh, we come to you now and we pray that you would be our teacher. Pray that you would remove the things from our minds, our hearts that distract us. Uh, We are thankful for this time to be able to study together. And we are aware, many of us, God, just how much we need you uh, to speak to us. So do that now through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We are in the third week of a series on the subject of reconciliation. Uh, We have talked about being reconciled to God. Then the following week after that, we talked about being reconciled to each other because we need that. Um, Yeah, we're a church, but we're people who aren't perfect and don't pretend to be. And uh, we uh, offend each other, hurt each other, do things to each other that we shouldn't, uh, don't do things to each other that we should. And so we need reconciliation too. And this morning, we are going to talk about extending that reconciliation to others, others outside these walls. I don't think anybody in this room would dispute the fact that our world could use a little bit of reconciliation right now. Would you agree? Kind of seems like uh, we need a little bit of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes about our ministry of reconciliation. And he says that the prompting, the calling, the impetus for us to be reconciled to our world is actually Jesus' love for us. Nothing more, nothing less. Jesus' love for us. In fact, these are Uh, the words of the Apostle Paul himself. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So what we have experienced with Jesus compels, Paul says, us to look for places in our world where we can carry this ministry of reconciliation, being reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Paul says the reconciliation that Jesus gave us or accomplished for us causes us to no longer live for ourselves. And that's supposed to be true about everybody who follows Jesus. We are not living any longer for ourselves. Our lives are not just about us. Uh, They are not just about me or not just about me and God. Paul says that God has committed to you and me a ministry, a calling to be a reconciler, a ministry of reconciliation. He goes on to say, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Interesting idea. Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now this morning, we're going to look at how we take seriously this ministry of reconciliation that God has given us. Uh, I want to look at a familiar passage of scripture together with you. At least it'll be familiar to most of you. It helps us understand just how far Jesus wants us to go in this ministry of reconciliation. And Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 10. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. Uh, if you grew up in church, you probably heard this story in Sunday school. You maybe watched it play out on a flannel graph 
depending on how old you were or are. Um, you know, it's a, it's a story that you could say is warm and fuzzy. Uh, it's got a good moral, uh, go help people, you know, love your neighbor and so. But here's the deal. Jesus didn't tell this story to get us to be good neighbors, to be good. He told it literally to change us, change us inside, in here, change our lives. He wanted to affect his listeners in a way that would forever change them. And that's what Jesus wants to do to you and me as we revisit this story. He wants to change us with this story. And so as we examine the passage, let's ask the question, will I, ask it of yourself, will I listen in such a way to invite Jesus to change me with this story that he tells, told then and tells today? The story begins in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It begins this way. On one occasion, an expert or a lawyer, an expert in the law, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this was a common practice in Jesus' day. If you were a rabbi, uh, there were many traveling, itinerant rabbis, and they would be out teaching somewhere, and crowds would gather around them. Different people would be in that crowd. Everyday common people, uh, religious leaders, teachers of the law would gather as well, experts in the law. And uh, often, people would engage with that rabbi in dialogue, back and forth, in debate. And so, they would do this, they would pose questions, and they would do this to learn. They would do this in order to grow. They would do this in order to sharpen their thinking around some theological uh, point or particular. Uh, Luke tells us here that the motivation that prompted this expert in the law's questioning of Jesus was actually he wanted to test Jesus. So he's not exactly engaging in debate. He's got a, an ulterior motive, if you will. He wants to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, he asked. And at the face value of that question, that seems like a pretty good question. Uh, that's a good thing to ask. It's not even that complicated, kind of simple. But understand, there's something going on underneath the surface with this question. Basically, the lawyer was testing to see if Jesus agreed with other religious leaders of that day. Would Jesus be faithful to the law as they understood it, you see, is the subtext. Most experts in the law, most religious leaders believed that following the letter of the law, the details of the law, you know, strict obedience when it came to the festivals that the Jewish people observed, there were things you were supposed to do, there were things you were not supposed to do. Uh, obedience with regards to ritual sacrifices. There were sacrifices that were to be done daily or to be done weekly or to be done at certain times, certain festivals, certain times of the year. There were ritual cleansings that a person was supposed to observe. There were dietary restrictions that the Jews needed to pay attention to. There were things like cultural things like separating, keeping oneself separated from Gentiles, from people who were not worshipers of Yahweh. All these things were a part of their practice, a part of their religion, uh, a part of their law. And so this strict adherence to religious practice is what they thought guaranteed you reconciliation with God. These things are what connected you to God. These things are what gave you life with God, or they would say eternal life. Uh, and so here Jesus, when he was presented with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life in true kind of Columbo-like style, he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he asks a question. Uh, he volleys back with another question of his own. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it, he answered. How do you read it? 
And uh, the, the lawyer, the expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Now, that should have been the end of this whole encounter right there. Uh, but it wasn't. It seems the lawyer wanted a little more clarification, especially on the subject uh, of the neighbor. <laughs> uh, it says this. It says he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, again, in that day, the vast majority of religious leaders would define neighbor as a fellow Israelite, you see. Uh, people who looked and acted and lived and believed the same kinds of things that they believed. Their life looks similar to your life, so to speak. But Jesus doesn't give this lawyer a list of neighbors. Instead, he gives him a story, which is interesting. A story that paints a picture of a love that has no boundaries. A love that doesn't have limits on it. It's a story that calls us to recognize that our neighbor is anyone whose path we cross who might just have a need, be it spiritual or be it material, be it financial, whatever. Uh, it's a story that challenges us to move out of our comfort zones. Uh, understand Jewish social structure in Jesus' day kind of looked like a pyramid. At the very top of that pyramid, you had people like priests. Levites, Pharisees, Sadducees. Beneath them, there were teachers of the law. There were scribes, all at the top of influence and importance on that social pyramid. And then from there, moving down the pyramid, you had families that could trace their ancestry back hundreds of years to demonstrate that they were part of the faithful remnant. The, their ancestors had come back from that Babylonian captivity that had happened so many centuries ago. Um, their ancestors had returned and rebuilt cities, Jerusalem in particular, and the temple uh, specifically. They were part, in other words, of the faithful few. And now below them, there were some more Jews in this social pyramid, but these Jews were a little bit questionable. These were Jews that didn't observe the law quite so strictly. Uh, they had questionable lifestyles. They had questionable employment. Some of them questionable character, questionable behavior. They were loose law keepers. They were merchants who did business with Gentiles or with the Romans. They were tax gatherers like Matthew, for example. Uh, these were people ignorant of parts of the law. And frankly, this is the vast majority of the Jewish population. And below these folks, there were Jews of mixed marriages, right? Jews, but not fully Jews, descendants of folks that had remained in the land during that exile, that period back there, when all of the population of Israel was picked up and transported to other parts of the world. Uh, these were people left in the land. These were very unimportant people, very poor people, uh, very uneducated people, people of mixed races, part Jew, part Gentile, because what they did is they intermarried with people who were brought into that land by the Babylonians. And these people were given a name. They were called Samaritans because most of them, many of them, were from that region of Samaria. And uh, these people were considered by the Jews to be worse than Gentiles because, you see, they were Jews, but they had not remained faithful. 
they had forsaken the faith, right? And the question that the lawyer is asking Jesus is really uh, Jesus, uh, when he says, who is my neighbor? He's really saying, well, where do we draw the line, Jesus? You have to draw the line somewhere. How far out do we have to go? I mean, obviously, a priest is my neighbor. A Levite is my neighbor. A faithful fellow Jew is my neighbor. But to go beyond that, we start to get a little ridiculous, don't we, Jesus? And so this expert in the law wants to know, and who is my neighbor? Now, again, instead of giving him an answer, Jesus gives him a story. Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. And, you know, this beginning to this story that Jesus tells would have been kind of familiar to the listeners. Everybody knew about that 17-mile road that went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Uh, It was narrow. It was twisty. If you traveled it alone or at the wrong time, it could be quite dangerous. There were lots of places for thugs Lots of places for robbers to hide. Uh, It was quite predictable. Again, if you traveled it alone or at the wrong time, you could be set upon by thieves and robbers and people who would take what you had might even take your life. And of course, that's what happens in Jesus' story. It says that this man who was traveling, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. It's interesting to me, Jesus has purposefully given us a little detail in this story about this one who's been set upon by these these robbers. It says that his clothes were gone. And what that means is, it has an important meaning for the story. That means that any external clue as to the social strata or the identity of this individual is missing. You're not going to be able to tell anything about this individual. Uh, And that's important, you see. Because when the next three characters in this story show up, we need to keep that in mind. They had no way of knowing if this man fell into the category of neighbor or acceptable person that they should show compassion to. Uh, Now, so people are listening to Jesus, you know, and Jesus was a great storyteller. I mean, when he would unfold one of these stories, you can be guaranteed people were just hanging on. What's he going to say next? What's he going to say next? And I think the people are probably thinking they know where this story is going. I mean, Jesus is a rabbi, right? And he's talking about helping someone who needs help. And uh, the moment Jesus says the next two words, which are a priest, he says a priest. I think they thought, oh, aha. Okay, that's the hero of the story. I can already tell you where this story's going. And Jesus says a priest happened to be going down the same road. Not surprising, because fact of the matter, in Jesus' day, there were many priests who lived in the town of Jericho, right? And so a priest would often finish his business, which would be serving in the temple or in the temple grounds. And once that business was finished, Sabbath was over, they would then head down that 17-mile road from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, riding along. And uh, Jericho was, in fact, a great place to live at that time. It was a beautiful, small city. It was out of the hustle and the bustle and all the heat of Jerusalem. And so many uh, people with means actually did live there. And the priest or uh, anybody of that level in society would not be walking the 17 miles. They would be riding. They had transportation. So here's the picture. The priest, probably having just fulfilled religious responsibilities there in Jerusalem, happened to be on his way home. And it says, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. The other side of what? The other side of the road. 
He got as far away from the man in need as he possibly, possibly could. And I'll tell you, when Jesus said he passed by on the side, uh, probably that elicited some snickers, you know, some uh, chuckling. Because Jesus had just introduced a little surprise into this story. The person they thought would be the obvious hero now is not. Uh, In fact, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't bother to investigate. Uh, He doesn't even go near the injured individual. Just keeps right on going. And I don't know this, but my guess is that the priest is thinking something like, who's going to know? There's nobody here to see what I do or what I don't do, so I'm just going to keep on going, and nobody will ever be the wiser. Uh, And this is surprising to the people listening to this story. They did not see that little twist coming in this story. The story is now a little different than they expected. And now Jesus moves to the next character. So too, he says, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, and I'm guessing at this point, people were relieved for a moment at least. Uh, They're relieved because the Levite was, of course, uh, a member of a tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And and the Levites were people that were uh, commanded by God to serve the priests in and around the temple and its worship. And so this is a very respectable person, a good Jew, right? On the social pyramid, they're only a notch down from priests. Uh, This is somebody that you can count on to help somebody in need. And so obviously Jesus was going to make this second character the hero hero of the story. It's not going to be a priest. It's going to be a Levite. But again, Jesus kind of surprises all the listeners. Uh, So too, he says, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And so now folks are wondering, well, where exactly is this rabbi? Where where is Jesus going with this story? He's supposed to be answering the question, remember, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? Who am I obligated to serve? To whom am I called to minister reconciliation? And these first two travelers, the priest and the Levite, they're religious characters. They're righteous people. They love the law. They strictly observe the law. They were the people everybody thought God most approved of. A priest, a Levite. And so surely they would love God and they would love their neighbor. And so why would these two pass by a badly injured, robbed and beaten traveler and leave him to die? Why? Well, there actually are some reasons. You be the judge of whether they're legit or not, but there, there were some reasons. Uh, for one thing, uh, for that priest or that Levite to have touched that individual laying there beside the road and then to have discovered that that individual is dead, that would have made that priest or that Levite unclean. That would go against the Jewish laws of purity. Uh, meaning then that you could not serve on the temple grounds for a period of at least a week. It also meant that you would have to do certain things to become ceremonially clean. You would have to purchase a red heifer cow and have that cow sacrificed. And there was nothing cheap about any of that. Nothing at all. Another reason not to stop for them would have just been personal safety. Uh, It was not unheard of for robbers to use one of their own as a decoy, make themselves look injured, get someone to stop, to help. When they did, you find out it was a ruse, you're being robbed, or worse. 
And so for all the priests and the Levite knew the robbers could still be around, still be watching, still be waiting. So better just to get out of there as fast as they could. Now, in addition, there were certain other social barriers in place, something I've already mentioned. These Jews had taboos concerning helping anyone who was not a Jew. Maybe this is a Roman. Maybe this person is a Samaritan. Worse, uh, a person of questionable behavior. This person beside the road uh, may have been somebody that would just, it would be unacceptable to even offer them help. And this person, as we've already noted, was, was stripped of all his belongings, clothes, donkey, travel bag, whatever he had. It's all gone now. And so uh, apparently, too, not speaking or not able to speak. And uh, so it's just easier to pass by rather than take a risk. The man probably looked dead. So may, maybe there's nothing you could really do for him anyway. You know, that kind of thinking. And then there was time to consider. Wow. The priest and the Levite on their way home. This is a timely, a time-consuming situation if they actually stop and actually engage and actually offer help. Not just time, but money. Red heifer, you know, I already mentioned that. Uh, all of this is equal to a costly situation. And so there were lots of cultural, even religious reasons and personal reasons not to stop, not to help not to get involved and just focus on themselves, right? Take care of themselves. Now, unfortunately, that's what the priest and the Levite did. In fact, they had become victims, you could say, I think rightly say, they had become victims of their own cultural and religious bias. And consequently, their religion had become lifeless, meaningless. It wasn't challenging them to love God. It wasn't challenging them to loved their neighbors sacrificially. It was full of restraints, right? It was full of ritual, but not life, not love, not the things that impact others positively, not full of compassion for the needy. And so Jesus' surprising little story starts to get kind of personal, personal to the listeners. And people have to be wondering at this point, man, where's where's he going with this? what point is he trying to make? Now, I'm guessing the majority of people listening would have now been expecting the next character to show up in Jesus' story, the hero, to be just, you know, the ordinary Jewish male. That, that's obviously going to be uh, the hero. Not somebody high up on the social pyramid, not a religious leader, not a Levite, not a scribe, not a lawyer, just an ordinary Jewish guy. Someone who happened by, saw the man at the side of the road and does something to help. And I guarantee you, guarantee you the next three words in this story would have been jaw dropping. They would have elicited an audible gas. <gasps> if there were parents there with little kids, they would have covered their kids ear because the ears, because the next words out of Jesus mouth were these, but a Samaritan. Jesus makes the hero of his story a Samaritan. Wow. (laughs) Nobody, 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 nobody saw that coming. Imagine for a moment in your life, who would you consider somebody that you could avoid showing compassion to simply because they are so far outside your circle, be it politically, 
be it socially, be it theologically or socioeconomically or whatever. They are so unacceptable, so out there, so generally looked down upon, so unworthy that you would give yourself a pass on having to be a neighbor to them and almost nobody else would second guess you. You see, that's what Jesus was saying to this expert in the law. Understand, a Samaritan to a Jew, as I said a moment ago, was utterly unacceptable, utterly unlovable, despicable, in fact. And that's because many years ago, during the years of that exile, the exile when Israelites were taken off to Babylon, when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was torn down and all the temple artifacts carted off to Babylon, Samaritans were descendants of the few Jews who stayed, who remained, who were left in the land. And again, they were the poorest of the poor. They were the least educated among the Jews. And therefore, too, the least important. And generally, in the years that followed, they intermarried with the Gentiles. So they're now mixed breeds, right? They were unfaithful Jews. They'd compromised their religion. They'd compromised their culture. They'd compromised their ethnic purity. And now it was 70 years later when the pure-blooded Jews who had been carted off into exile came back to the land. They rebuilt cities in the land, in particular Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt their homes. And this mixed group of Jews, the Samaritans, wanted to help them. But their offer was rejected. And what's more, the pure bloods cut themselves off completely from the mixed bloods and labeled them Samaritans and made them their worst enemies. Hated them even more than Gentiles. And so I understand Jews would go out of their way to avoid Samaritans. And likewise, Samaritans would go out of their way to avoid Jews. And now Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, introduces a Samaritan into his story. And worse, the Samaritan is the hero of the story. So the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is... Anyone who truly helps, even if that's a Samaritan, and we're going to talk more about this in a moment, but Jesus takes this whole story and does an interesting twist with it. You see, in Jesus' story, the first two characters, the priest and the Levite, they come, they see the need, and they do nothing. They keep right on going. They pass right by. But Jesus' Samaritan helps and keeps on helping and serves and keeps on serving and gives and keeps on giving. The Samaritan is a neighbor to the injured traveler, even though he has the same list of reasons not to stop as the priest and the Levite have. You may not know this about Samaritans, but the truth is uh, they read and observed and believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. In fact, they consider themselves to be the true blue followers of those five books. And so they were bound to by Jewish law, those five books. They were bound to to observe the laws of ritual purity. They were bound to to, you know, live their life clean and unclean. And therefore, certain rituals and certain laws were important to them. Their personal safety was an issue you too or would have been in this situation and so this Samaritan has to deal with all the social barriers of his culture and Samaritans like I said hated Jews as much as Jews hated Samaritans 
So he too had similar or the same kinds of issues that he had to overcome or excuses that he could have offered, time, money, personal danger. But it's interesting to me as I read this, Jesus almost goes out of his way to mention in staccato-like fashion, boom, 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 all of the costs that were associated with this Samaritan's rendering service to the wounded traveler. This is what we read. It says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Why does the Samaritan do any of this? Well, honestly, we don't exactly know the answer to that. We're left guessing somewhat. But I would say this, something is certainly going on in the heart, in the life, in the mind of this Samaritan. Because when he sees the injured man, he doesn't first think of himself. It actually says he took pity on him. So something is stirring, something is happening to create compassion in the life of this Samaritan. And maybe, again, we don't know, it was exactly because he was a Samaritan. It's possible. Perhaps the centuries of animosity between his people and the Jewish people had built in him a heart of compassion, or at least a a deep, deep desire to see reconciliation happen between these peoples. Being a Samaritan, this man would know a little bit about what it feels like to be an outsider, what it was like to be beaten down, what it's like to be rejected, what it's like to be disadvantaged. And maybe somehow, again, I admit I'm just guessing, but instead of being resentful and cynical and angry and filled with hatred towards Jews, this Samaritan perhaps had drawn near to God. He'd been reconciled to God. And when you do that, what happens? Well, we're we're told in the Bible, in fact, Jesus' brother James is the one who tells us, he says, when you draw near to God, God draws near to you. And this this isn't just a, a New Testament teaching. This is throughout the scriptures. You know, the psalmist writes that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those who are crushed In spirit, you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. The psalmist in Psalm 147 says that God heals the brokenhearted, binding up their wounds. That's a picture of what we have the Samaritan doing here. You see, our God is a God of compassion. He's a God of love. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a good God. He is a God of reconciliation. And anytime we cry out to God for help or for strength or for wisdom or salvation, our God answers responds to that prayer with compassion. And when you've received these things from God, what that does is that grows a heart that desires reconciliation in you. And I think this Samaritan knew what it was to be beaten, to be wounded, to be rejected, be despised. But he also knew what it was to be reconciled to God. I think that's what produced this pity, this compassion, this caring, this loving in the heart of the Samaritan. I think the Samaritan uh, was a recipient of God's mercy and God's kindness and God's forgiveness. And therefore, when he saw someone else in need, what was he going to do? Well, he had to respond. 
Because that's what it meant to love God. It meant loving his neighbor. And he couldn't separate those two. You know, the apostle John had spent some years following Jesus around and watching Jesus serve the needy and love on people that nobody else loved. And, and the apostle John wrote these words. He said, we love. Yeah, why? Why do we love John? Well, because he first loved us. And there you have it. You know, loving people is always risky business. You don't know how people are going to respond. You don't know if they're going to appreciate it. You don't know if they're even going to want your help. You're never sure of the outcome when it comes to loving people. It's interesting to me that in Jesus' story here, he's kind of explicit about the cost of loving this wayside traveler, the cost that were incurred by the Samaritan. He makes it clear that this Samaritan paid a huge price for loving his neighbor. This Samaritan had to stop the bleeding, right? Had to bandage the wounds, had applied medicine and salve, expensive in that day, kind of like it is today, right? Gave up his ride for this 17-mile walk, took this man to an inn, changed his plans for that evening, stayed up that evening rendering care to this individual. In the morning, he gives the innkeeper two days' wages, two silver coins, and promises to return and pay any other expenses that might be incurred in taking care of this man. In other words, the Samaritan says, whatever it takes, you have my permission and my money, just do it. Just do it. I got, got to tell you, I, I would love so many of Jesus' stories. I would have loved to have been there to hear him tell them. Um, because in this place in the story, this particular story, I'll bet the silence and the tension were so loud, so palpable. Realize Jesus didn't answer the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Instead, Jesus reshapes the lawyer's question. Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer, you see, wanted a list. Uh, that goes like this. Your neighbors are this person, this person, this person, and not this person. That's what the lawyer was looking for. But Jesus turns the whole thing around by saying, the question isn't, who's my neighbor? The question is, will you be a neighbor? <laughs> will you be a neighbor to whomever God brings across your path? That's the question. And remember, the lawyer was asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That was his question. And he wants the answer, of course, to be something that he's comfortable with. He wants the answer to be something he can do. He wants the answer to be something that fits within his lines, his boundaries, his cultural preferences. But Jesus' story makes it clear that real love, loving God and loving your neighbor often, often calls us outside our comfort zones, outside our cultural preferences, sometimes outside our lifeless religion. You see, in Jesus' story, love doesn't define its objects ahead of time. Oh, okay, let's see. I love you, I love you, I love you, but not you and not you and not you. Instead, love discovers its objects along the way, along the path. 
We can't know in the morning who our neighbor will be. It's as you go through each day, day, God will reveal our neighbor to us. Or he will reveal to whom we are to be a neighbor, you see. And again, the lawyer had asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, I got, I got news for you. Jesus tells him this story. And in essence, what Jesus is saying to this lawyer is your religious system, your rule keeping, your cultural preferences won't produce in you what's needed to inherit eternal life. Because that stuff won't make you capable of loving the way God loves. You see, a kingdom person, a person uh, who loves the way Jesus loves, a person who loves their neighbor isn't primarily a rule keeper. I'm not saying there aren't things we should or shouldn't do. I'm not saying, I'm just saying uh, a kingdom person, a person who loves the way Jesus loves isn't primarily a rule keeper. They aren't looking to live in their comfort zones. They're not looking for a good definition of neighbor that will eliminate some people that are difficult to love. In a way, anyone who is truly a kingdom person isn't looking to justify themselves like this lawyer was. They are someone who has been reconciled to God. They are someone who has been loved by God and forgiven by God and bandaged and mended by God. In other words, changed by God. So much so that it impacts how they love and how they serve others and who they love. That's who inherits eternal life. That's life with God. Now, here's the deal. Until we understand that we are the broken, beaten, helpless person lying beside the road, all of our possessions taken, meaning we have no means of rescuing ourselves, knowing that we are going to perish unless someone comes along to rescue us. Until we understand that Jesus is that good Samaritan. He was the one most outcast. He was the one most hated, most rejected. But at great personal cost of time, effort, energy, glory, life. He stopped to mend our wounds to reconcile us to himself. And he picked us up and he rescued us. And when we get that, then we start to become good neighbors to others. Then we become reconcilers. Then we embrace the grace that we've received and we want to share it with others. Then we become helpers, we become rescuers, we become good neighbors. Precisely because we've met the good neighbor. And the question for all of us who claim to have been reconciled to God or claim to be loved by God is simply this. Are we loving our neighbors? Uh, Are we reconcilers? Because that's the greatest evidence of the fact that we've been reconciled. You see, here's what's supposed to happen. Every Sunday we open these doors and we come in and we gather together for worship and we sing God's praise and we pray and we study and so. 
In worship, we are reminded time and time again how great our God is. We're reminded of his goodness. We're reminded of his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy and love toward us and all the things that he's done to reconcile us to himself. We're reminded that countless times, every single day, he mends our broken spirits and he applies a healing salve to our wounds and he pays the price for our mending and understand that story is supposed to change us. And then when worship is over and we all go out these doors, out into the world, understand what's really happening is hundreds of good Samaritans, hundreds of good neighbors are being sent out to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. That's what all this is about. And we understand that both in word and in deed, we are to be reconcilers, good neighbors. And so we serve and we share and we show compassion where compassion is needed. And we show love and mercy. We speak the truth with humility. You see, we love because he first loved us. And so much so, we love those who are different than us. We love even our enemies. We accept people, people who don't accept us. We reach out to people. We invite people to join us and be reconciled to this God that we've come to know and believe in. Now, every single one of us has people in our lives that need the ministry of reconciliation that we're talking about. They need to know Jesus, what he's done and how he loves them. And so my challenge and my encouragement to us all is don't pass people by on the other side. Like the priest and like the Levite. Let God show you day by day who's hurting, who needs encouragement, who needs help, who needs prayer, who needs support, who needs you to love and to serve and to share the love of God with them. My encouragement is be open, be prayerful, be ready to be an ambassador for Christ to anyone and everyone who comes across your path who might not know him and just to end with this, you know, this is why, I'll tell you how we look at, at uh, Christmas Eve. I mean, Christmas Eve is, of course, a time to gather and worship and give thanks to God. But in our culture, it's also become a huge time where we share the good news about Jesus. That's what we'll be doing this Christmas Eve. And that's why we always appeal to you to be prayerful and be careful and invite people who may or may not know Jesus, but maybe they're alone on Christmas Eve. And I, as I said at the beginning, you know, it's so odd in our culture, folks will join you for a Christmas Eve service with at other times of the year, they probably wouldn't, but uh, engage in the opportunities that God brings to you to invite people you love and you care about people you pray for to join you here with us Christmas Eve and we'll be in prayer with you and we're going to share the good news and who knows, maybe some of them will understand the love of God. 
And then the other thing, the, the Christmas gift. Why do we bother doing that? Don't, don't we spend enough money at Christmas? Yeah, we probably all do spend enough money at Christmas on each other, on our families. But I would challenge you, don't let it stop there. Reach out. Be an ambassador. Engage in the ministry of reconciliation. In the case of the Christmas gift with people you're probably never going to meet. You're never going to fully understand to what extent or impact your giving, your gift has. Until maybe, until maybe you see them in heaven. But it's a reconciling ministry that we've been given. It's something we do, it begins in prayer. It's something we do both in word and in deed. And it is such a privilege that we have to get to love on others because he has first loved on us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are a good, good father. And we thank you for going to such extremes to reconcile us to yourself through Jesus. I pray for myself and for all of us in this room that our gratitude for what you have done would grow and grow and grow. I pray that a story like this would change us all, Lord. And that we would be aware of the calling we have to be ministers of reconciliation. I pray, Father, for services coming up this next week that you would be at work in all of our lives. Those of us who know you, God, that we would find ourselves even more grateful for your love and your ministry of reconciliation. I pray for any God that might join us who do not know you as yet. I pray, God, you would call them and draw them to yourself, that they would understand why this baby entered the world quietly in a lowly manger, that they would understand how this babe eventually became the one through whom we are reconciled. Father, we are grateful to you, for who you are, for what you've done, for what you will do. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.